What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health, sponsored by peer-run support communities Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Welcome to our new broadcast station, KBOO, in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for joining us today on Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Uh, Today I have Brian Hartnett. Brian is the chairperson of Hearing Voices Ireland. He is a key member of Renew, a mind-body-soul well-being organization, and a member of the Campaign Against Suicide. And for six years, he was a peer advocate with the Irish Advocacy Network. Brian is calling us from Limerick, Ireland. He's diagnosed with schizophrenia, and we are going to be talking today about schizophrenia, spirituality, music, and dance culture, especially the rave culture that Brian has been very involved in. So, Brian, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks a lot for joining us. Okay, thanks, Will. It's uh, nice to be on the show, and um, thank you very much for uh, inviting me on to to speak. Yeah, I met Brian at the uh, recent Hearing Voices Congress in uh, Holland uh, that I presented at, and it was really interesting to speak with you and learn about your advocacy work. Um, You describe yourself as someone who is misdiagnosed with schizophrenia, and I definitely share that perspective. And you've got a very interesting story um, in the role that music has played in your spirituality, and especially uh, the rave culture, which some of the listeners may know a little bit about or we're going to be learning about um, today on the on the show. So it's great to have you on Madness Radio today. So maybe we should just get started. Tell us a little bit about some of your background and um, tell us about how you first started experiencing different or altered states of consciousness that would later end up being diagnosed or misdiagnosed as uh, schizophrenia. I live in Limerick uh, City, which is in Ireland. We, um, we growing up here in the 70s, uh, had a very different uh, lifestyle to what we have now. I suppose it's the same all over the world. Um, things have changed quite dramatically, and I suppose they always will. But uh, you mentioned music there. Music has been a kind of a theme running through my uh, life up until now. In the 60s, I suppose I was too young. I mean, there was a couple of pop songs on the radio that I would remember vaguely as a child. But I suppose it was in the early 70s that I started to kind of sit up and take more notice of, of music. Um, in the early 70s, you had in, in this part of the world, and you had glam rock. So you had things like Gary Glitter and The Sweet and um, you know, all that sort of uh, stuff. David Bowie, I guess, and the Bay City Rollers. Bay City Rollers, definitely, yeah, David Bowie and all that, um, and uh, T-Rex, Matt Bowen and everything. Um, so they would have been the first kind of things. And around that time as well, I think one of the first albums that I heard was um, Tubular Bells by Mike Goldfield, and that, that made a big impression on me. Um, a friend had it. And I had an uncle who had um, was a, kind of a bit older than me, and he was a bit of a hippie, and he had a couple of, couple of uh, records which I used to borrow. We didn't have a pop radio station even. Um, we had a local national radio station um, called RT1, which is still here today. But um, it back then, uh, you had the top top 20 or top 30 tunes played, I think, on a Sunday by a DJ called Larry Gogan, who's still around. And um, there was uh, that was about the, the, the local... Um, uh, access to pop music. Music certainly was a very important part of my, um, you know, my my uh, journey. 
I came from a very stable family background, I suppose. I was very lucky in that respect. Uh, my parents came, both came from very poor backgrounds, but they actually just worked very hard to get what they had. They kind of kept their heads down and did um, everything they could for us as, as, as children. So I'm very grateful to them because it gave me a great grounding, which kind of stood by me throughout the years particularly when I got into difficulties later on, you know. Different people seem to take a slightly different route through life, and mine uh, involved a lot of uh, sort of turmoil and um, pain and suffering, but uh, I suppose I learned an awful lot from it as well. And I'm glad to say at this stage that um, I've come out the other end of um, a kind of a, a, a turmoil and uh, finally beginning to settle down a bit. When I first started to go to college, um, I started smoking marijuana or um, weed or whatever back then. Uh, hash is what we call it here. And it was very, it was kind of unusual at the time. It's not like now where, where street drugs are much more common than, the, than they used to be. Back then it was a very kind of a, a typical art, art college type of a thing, you know. But going back a bit further, drink certainly was always a thing which was, how will I say, promoted in Ireland as, as the kind of the drug of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in the in the late 70s, when I was quite young, I suppose I would have been maybe 15, 16, 17 when I started having my first few drinks. And unfortunately, in this country at the time, and I suppose it's not that different today, there was a kind of an irresponsible attitude towards alcohol, um, which was like, you didn't just go out and have a couple of, you know, sociable drinks. The, the whole idea was to go out and get absolutely out of your mind, you know. So that was something which didn't get me off to a great start, to be honest with you. Um, and like I say, me personally, I was a person who um, didn't have much control over these things. Anyway, musically... Uh, I got into punk in the 70s um, and there was a local guy who I met up with and he became a good friend of mine and uh, we we were sort of, there was probably only about 10 punks in Limerick or that's the way it seemed anyway at the time but uh, we... We um we were freaks from the word go to be honest with you you know and uh, it hasn't really changed since you know but um uh, true punk I got into we said the early electronic music like uh, the Human League were big at the time obviously Joy Division and a lot of alternative uh, uh, electronic music and stuff stuff like uh, Throbbing Gristle Cabaret Voltaire um, that sort of stuff um, so I was big into a kind of electronic sound almost like from from earlier on. Um, Kraftwerk's Autobahn back in the early 70s was something which I had heard on Radio Luxembourg and it oh, it was yeah. like it was like something had um, I don't know it was like it was coming from another planet it just sounded so different you know so I had always sought out that kind of spatial kind of electronic sound but I, I liked I liked music across the board I loved pop music um, and everything so I've been always been very broad minded when it comes to music and I continue to be like that you know When did you start having sort of unusual experiences it sounds like you were getting into altered states with marijuana and alcohol but when did you start having more kind of far out uh, experiences that would later sort of be part of madness or extreme states or schizophrenia or whatever you want to call it i went to uh, london in 88 and it was around that time that ecstasy and uh, well cocaine crack etc were around as well but ecstasy in particular was something which kind of took up took off around mid mid 80s but by the time i got to london in 88 the rave scene 
um, or dance culture was really beginning to start to kick in and Acid House was the music of the choice at the time. I started, I was working in a pub in South London temporarily before I, when I was in this pub one night, a couple of guys came in and, uh, you know, I had been listening to Acid House on some pirate stations in South London, uh, Lightning FM and a few other ones and uh, Centre Force over in the East End. And I uh, wanted to go to raves. I was dying to go to raves, and I, you know, I was I was destined for this. Do you know what I mean? This is where I was heading, like from the word go. So along with the these guys came into the pub, and I said, you know, how they were talking about uh, having been to raves and stuff, and um, I went. I started going to raves with them, and of course, um, pretty soon after, um, I took my first uh, ecstasy and my first LSD. In fact, the first night I did um, LSD or um, ecstasy, I took a half an ecstasy and a half an LSD. So I was uh, looking for the best of both worlds from the word go. But Now, for people who don't know what uh, a rave is, maybe tell us a little bit about that and what, what did you find there? Well, I suppose a rave, a rave is a good word for it because it implies that people were raving mad or something. But um, no, it, a rave, how do I put it? I mean, it's basically, it was a nightclub. But because the music scene and the, the drugs associated were so underground, a lot of these raves, when they started first, um, were um, in small, how do I put it, illegal venues. Like they were, I remember going to places under the arches and things like that of, uh, you know, train lines, um, all sorts of, uh, some smaller pubs put on things, probably unbeknownst to them that they were having all these nutters coming in on, on ecstasy, you know, but... I suppose it took a while before the authorities really cottoned on to the sort of the uh, what was what was going on. And quite quickly, they started to crack down on these illegal raves. And then there was a kind of a uh, kind of a movement almost developed about around the whole thing of illegal gatherings of people. In fact, I think they actually brought in new laws to somehow combat the uh, underground rave scene. Um, I mean, it, the thing expanded very quickly within a couple of years it had gone from a couple of hundred people to thousands and thousands of people meeting in warehouses and all sorts of things what was the appeal what what went on i mean tell us a little bit about what the experience is of like it was certainly the music but it was also the drug i mean ecstasy is a very powerful um drug and particularly when they came out first um, they were very very strong i mean I actually, to be honest with you, didn't do a huge amount of drugs over the years. Um, I, I took maybe, I don't know, maybe 20 E's in my whole life or something like that and other bits and pieces, different things. Well, at first, um, the first time I did it was in a house at a, at a party and just was it's kind of a safer environment. And I had this all different experiences. Uh, it's hard to describe, but it was basically hallucinogenic distortion of reality. But, you know, not completely sort of losing track of reality but when I started going to clubs it was a totally different experience because the music was very loud it was very dramatic music it was obviously very electronic which kind of suited me the dance aspect of it when you took an ecstasy tablet and started dancing the more you danced the sort of the better buzz as you call it you, we used to call it that you would get off it so the dancing the music and the drugs kind of went hand in hand they were the, the elements and that was the thing which led you to this kind of heightened uh, state, which they would call, I suppose, an, an ecstatic state or why they chose the name ecstasy, you know. 
And I've actually done ecstasy myself, so I have a little bit of an experience of it, but I've never actually been in a rave dancing context. So what was what was that like? Well, it must have been very powerful if it was able to become the central focus of your life and to have such a, a disruptive um, impact. It was like a big community experience of people dancing, a very loving experience, a very high in happiness. And That was the way it felt, you know. It, for, it, it did feel to me at first that I was much more connected to people. And it felt like the atmosphere the room something it, it, it was almost like it was unseen the connection there between people like the various names of clubs even things like there was a club called telepathy for example which uh reflected the kind of thinking well not the thinking but the experience of people at the time people actually i, did, I believe actually did feel more connected um i guess now through uh, spiritual uh, mental physical you know, it just seemed that the atmosphere, the connection that people had in the room, in the clubs, etc., was stronger than it had been without this drug and without this music and this atmosphere, you know? So there was this feeling of times of, of a telepathic union that people were reaching, which is a very strong spiritual state that a lot of people meditate for years or go to spiritual practice or to try and reach that sense of getting beyond the ego and connecting with something larger, some kind of communion. Yeah, I mean, people sometimes wonder why the hell would anybody take this uh, these very um, illegal, um, mind-altering, possibly damaging um, substances? Uh, wouldn't wouldn't you imagine that it would be a very irresponsible thing to do? But to be honest with you. When everyone else around you is doing it and it seems fine and, and you're having a great time to, to, to most, to, to, to a degree, you know, that that's, that's the kind of way you're thinking at the time. Now, I feel, to be honest with you now, that the misinterpretation that people have about things like ecstasy is that it's it, it's a safe drug or, or that al even alcohol or, or any drugs are, are safe. I've come to the conclusion at the, at the end of the day that these drugs will give you a glimpse of heaven and then basically take you to hell, you know. Um, and and it, it might not happen straight away, but it can take a while for it to happen. I, I have found with, with drugs, basically, that uh, they may have an effect at first, which can be possibly, if you're lucky, uh, very, very good. But pretty quickly, it actually turns sour. And within a period of time, it actually becomes an absolute nightmare. It becomes hell on earth, you know. This is what happened for me. I don't know of anyone who's been able to manage taking street drugs and uh, maintaining health, essentially, and maintaining a sort of a stability in their life. It seems that it's almost impossible or is impossible to manage or control uh, the intake of, of these substances and, and manage to stay somehow healthy or connected with um, everyday life, family, friends, work, uh, anything like that. Because you're not talking about someone who's just exploring or trying something one or a few times, you're talking about an entire culture where people are going again and again and again back for that same experience and then they don't actually get it. What they get is something very different and i know that you know there's a lot of controversy around ecstasy and there's been a kind of a demonization where it's exaggerated the risks because it's certainly not as as dangerous as some other drugs but it is very related to to speed and it can be very hard on your body and if you're doing it again and again and again that can create lots of problems and then as we'll be talking about i mean it did have 
this effect on your mental health. And a lot of times people find that even cannabis, marijuana can be something that can, um, you know, be a trigger or a contributing factor or one stressor that can break open someone into a very difficult kind of psychotic experience or very difficult traumatized experience as well as maybe along with the sort of spiritual side of it or the insight or the psychological opening side, you get this very hellish side that you're talking about that can also be brought in. Well, I think there's so many different elements involved in, in all of this. I mean, it's, there's, there's cultural elements, there's our attitude uh, towards, you know, alcohol and, and street drugs and, and psychiatric drugs and all the rest of it. Um, we sort of are conditioned to have an attitude towards these things from an early age. And in some ways, we're almost uh, innocent uh, victims of our surroundings and our culture. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily look down or blame or, you know, anyone for, for having end, ending up uh, having problems associated with all of this kind of thing, because it can happen over a period of time. The best of people uh, end up uh, in with problems. I mean, I, I came from a very stable background. I had a very good education. I had everything going for me. I, I you could you could argue that I was a person who had all the who was equipped to be able to go out and do this sort of stuff and and somehow get through it. But I absolutely completely lost control of the situation over in London over a period of years. And I was lucky to get back out of there alive, to be honest with you. What was it that happened? You say you lost, uh, you started to lose control. Like, how did that um, develop for you? I, I suppose this this feeling, this feeling of being connected um, to, to other people began to, to sort of take on a very strong role in my life where I actually, it, the, the type of experiences I was having in the clubs when I started going out, didn't stop once I left the club. So I, if I was on a bus or, or going to work or even coming back to Ireland or talking to friends, I wasn't sure exactly what was going on as regards the communication between us. I wasn't sure whether we were having conversations because I actually was at that stage beginning to have conversations with people which were unspoken as such. And uh, I wasn't sure whether the other people were directly involved or not. So I began to develop this paranoia around um, whether I was in conversation with neighbours or friends or even people who were, you know, at the other the other side of the water over, you know, back in Ireland or whatever. You know? So you started having a very positive experience with the ecstasy and the raves and the, the dancing and the clubs of having these telepathy, union, unspoken communication, psychic phenomena, which, you know, may very well have been very real, but at some point it started to get grow and grow and grow it didn't stop when you came down from the drug you had it in your daily life and then pretty soon this psychic opening you you could say is kind of like actually breaking you into pieces and it's something that's overwhelming it goes from a psychic gift to kind of like a psychic overwhelm kind of like too much of a good thing maybe or maybe you weren't equipped to handle it or you didn't know how to deal with it or how to work with it or have any support and then pretty soon you start to go into a state that would be more described as schizophrenia, psychosis, because you're you're getting paranoid, you're getting frightened about who's saying what, is someone thinking about this, I can read people's thoughts, they can read my thoughts, um, those beliefs are coming into my head, I don't have control about how I'm communicating with people, and that must have been really, really terrifying for you. Well, it was, it, 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 it was just very disorientating, and, uh, you know, it took me a long time to realize that um, what we would call consensual reality was actually still very much intact. 
it didn't seem like that to me because the, if I was sitting beside, you know, my girlfriend or whatever, and I assumed or it seemed to me that we were having these conversations because I was in my mind, in my head or whatever you want to call it with her. But when I confronted with her for uh, with it, for example, what we were talking about, she would deny it. So then I would say, well, she must be lying. So I, I began to ask myself, well, why is she lying and who else is she, is she talking to? And is she actually talking to all these other people that because it wasn't just me and my girlfriend chatting in my head. It was just about everyone else. So, and the thing about it was, is, I mean, I had grown up, as I say, in this small town on the West coast of Ireland, gone to college in Dublin, gone to London. And I mean, London is a, is a much, much different environment to where I grew up. And I suppose when I was out there going to all of these places, I was trying to maintain my career as a designer working. I did get a full-time job in a company in, uh, old Bond Street and that was all going very well so I had this dilemma between my professional life and then going out in the evening and getting into my ravers gear or whatever and going off to raves and trying to balance these two things so something I had to give and it, I lost my job um, I certainly started drinking more and this this these voices this kind of um, distortion of reality um, this personal sort of world which developed me it it just got too much for me in the end and and when I did get back to Ireland in 1996 I've been back here since um I had to kind of start all over again when I did come back um my parents were good enough to take me in they had seen me come back on visits from London various times during the years uh, getting worse and worse and when I got back um my dad suggested that we go and talk to somebody because he could see I needed help. And to be honest with you, I did need help, but I didn't know what help I needed because I could barely even talk about this at the time. I didn't know how to find the words or the language because I had this huge paranoia around the whole thing. I felt that talking about it would get me into trouble. Um, I was being warned by voices not to talk about it. So at this point, you were having voices and you were having some kind of contact with spirits or beings that were talking to you. Yeah, I mean, I didn't necessarily see it in spiritual terms all, at the time, but I certainly didn't see it in terms of of, uh, of mental illness. I mean, to all intents and purposes, I was functioning. I, I was out there and I was doing what I was able to do. I was rational. I could have a rational conversation all the rest of it. But I had this extra layer of, of, of uh, stuff going on, which other people weren't aware of, but I wasn't, I wasn't sure whether they were or not. It sounds like also that you were having a huge number of other stressors in your life just i mean going out and after college and starting to work and having this career moving to a really big complicated hectic um city you mentioned the drinking i imagine like your food and sleep were all um out of kilter and so there's a lot of different things that are playing into what eventually became this kind of ongoing problem that you had that it was interfering with your work and then you ended up having to to lose your job yeah i mean I, my my change of of lifestyle if you like um was very dramatic you know and uh it, it went from i suppose one extreme to the other i mean i i was i was heading in one direction and then the whole thing completely changed and that was one of the hardest things i had to deal with was this complete um tangent i suppose that i took in my life i wasn't expected at all it certainly wasn't what i was expecting or anyone else when I came back, uh, you know, uh, everybody else had been getting on with their lives. And um, some of, by then, some people had gotten married. They had businesses set up. They had careers, etc., going well. 
um, the rest of my family were, were getting on with their lives and uh, I was a mess, you know. So it was very, it was very lonely. I was very, I suppose, ashamed of myself in a way as well. I was, yeah, I was thinking about that. It sounds like the isolation was a part of it. You mentioned the experience with your girlfriend and having your own reality not validated. And so suddenly you're alone and, of course, getting paranoid. Well, what are these people thinking about me if they don't believe this or I'm they're saying that I'm not actually aware of what I'm aware of the other hard thing for me as well is that um, my parents had absolutely no idea what was going on whatsoever I mean I certainly I, I wouldn't have been talking to them to be honest with you about what had been going on over in London and I was kind of putting a, a bit of a a uh, spin on a rosy picture on it, whatever. I didn't really want to start telling them about all of the stuff I'd been getting up to, you know. And um, they wouldn't have really, dis- they still find it hard to relate to or understand what I experienced because they um, never had any experience of it themselves. But I have tried over the years to try and uh, find the words or ways of describing how my life is and how I see my perception of reality, if you like, you know. So what happened when you did go and get get help you went to a doctor or a psychiatrist or um well my dad made some inquiries and uh we went to see a psychiatrist uh, locally um uh, near limerick and uh basically uh neither of us had ever had any experience of psychiatry or, or psychiatrist or anything like that so when we went in um we were just we just started talking and i was asked a couple of questions and I think I was asked something like, do I hear voices or something? Or something about voices came up. And uh, um, he, I was asked, are these voices in your head or outside? And I said, well, both. I mean, you have to remember now, I had been living with this huge extra experience for about seven years before I went to see this uh, person. And um, I, I, even opening my mouth about it was a huge event for me, you know, so... Um, I, I, I could have sat there for weeks, months even, talking about what had been going on because I had so much had happened. Um, but actually, to be honest with you, I was in and out of there in about 15 minutes and um, I was given a diagnosis of drug-induced schizophrenia based on the fact that I had um, uh, said that I was hearing voices and also that um, I, I mentioned about the drugs that I had been taking. So I was given this um, label, schizo- drug-induced schizophrenia, and I was told that I had to take this psychiatric medication. Uh, it was uh, ris- Risperidol I was put on. Which is a antipsychotic, an atypical antipsychotic, yeah. Yeah, and I was told that I had to take this if I was ever going to get better or these voices were going to stop. And I did say, well, look, do I really have to take this stuff? Because at that stage, the last thing I wanted to do was to take more drugs, you know, so... Um, I wasn't sure really whether this was a good idea or not, but uh, I suppose I was so desperate I was willing to try anything. And uh, I did start taking this stuff, but unfortunately it never really did stop um, this experience or this this uh, way of looking at things from from, from uh, happening. Or it did. I feel that what it really did, the medication, if you want to use that word, is, is to sedate me um, and to sort of blunt my perception of reality um um so you know it was a difficult situation because um i in some ways was so desperate i was willing to believe almost that what i had been experiencing um as grandiose and as huge and as as momentous as it was was actually simply just a, a mental illness but unfortunately um that never really worked for me you know
If you are just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and we're speaking with Brian Hardnett. Brian is diagnosed with schizophrenia, and he is the chairperson of Hearing Voices Ireland, a key member of Renew, which is a mind, body, and soul well-being organization, a member of the Campaign Against Suicide, and for six years, he was a peer advocate with the Irish Advocacy Network. We are speaking about schizophrenia, spirituality, music, and dance culture. I started taking the medication. Um, I managed to set up a design a business on a freelance basis locally with the help from the local enterprise board. They had to give me uh, money to buy computer equipment to learn how to use a computer for the first time. I, I kind of caught up as regards uh, my career eventually, but uh, I had to get myself back on track. Um, and I started going to a local support group. And after a few years, I was going to that, uh, working away freelance. I continued my interest in music throughout all of this and, you know, I started a club at night in a pub here called uh, called Daffy's and I used to call the club night Hush and I used to get DJs in to play different types of music, anything that wasn't being heard anywhere else. But you were just no longer taking the ecstasy or doing the... Oh, no, no, I, I didn't, I didn't... Uh, I didn't uh, take any um, any more drugs, but I mean, I was drinking uh, still, and unfortunately, what we call self-medicating with drinks. So it wasn't social drinking. It was it was drinking. Um, I had it just about under control, but uh, I also was a heavy smoker of cigarettes, and I was continuing to smoke marijuana um, a fair bit as well. But I had to eventually stop all that. I mean. Uh, about three years ago, I did stop drinking. I gave up cigarettes. Um, I certainly stopped uh, all drugs. And eventually, even I was able to wean myself off medication as well, uh, the psychiatric medication. And since I have put all of that behind me, I've undertaken a regime as well of, of uh, healthy living, which is, includes swimming every day. Um, I go for walks. Um, I lead a full life, you know. And I also, my I feel my biggest part of my recovery was spiritually, um, which I wouldn't have really strongly considered to be the most vital part or the part that I was neglecting the most until about two years or a year and a half ago. But since I have done something about my spiritual health, it has actually uh, been the final piece in the jigsaw as regards my journey back to being healthy. How did you do that? How how did you bring in the spiritual piece? Because it sounded like you were having these really strong experiences that would be called spiritual from a certain perspective, even though they were also tangled up with a lot of very painful and destructive uh, drug side. This is where the difficulty lies here when you start talking about um, street drugs, because people automatically assume that the experiences that you're having are something to do with a chemical reaction in the brain. Now, they probably are, and I suppose they are, but the other side of it is that I believe now that um, well-being, or that my, my being as such, is a balance of mind, body, and soul. So that when you take uh, hallucinogenic drugs, you're actually doing something to that balance and you are doing something to your spiritual uh, state as well. And I believe that when you open yourself up in this way with these very strong drugs, mind, body and soul, that's that balance and that uh, nature of your balance uh, changes and probably permanently. And that's something which I don't think people really realize when they're doing this stuff, because I mean, if you uh, if you don't have any guidance in this, like I didn't, 
uh, if you don't have any warning, if there's no sort of uh, rhyme or reason to it, if it's just complete chaotic um, opening yourself up in this way and you're out there uh, without any support, guidance or, or information really, um, it's it's you know you're you're really out there on your own and unfortunately an awful lot of people are I believe um, misdiagnosed in one way or another and put on psychiatric drugs when what they really need to do is look at their essential health in mind body and soul balance that it it's it doesn't you don't necessarily have to take. Um, psychiatric drugs or anything like that or, or even have to be diagnosed with something that this is a kind of um, a more natural way of looking at your 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 health as a balance of mind body and soul so you need to do something about your spiritual health your your mental health and also your physical health you need to you need to cover it across the board you need to work on all those three things at the same time and for me personally I feel that 10 years were taken out of my life when I was taking um, psychiatric drugs for 13 years I probably would have recovered myself I feel to where I am now in three or four years but it was delayed by an extra 10 years because I was taking psychiatric medication it held me back you know it didn't help me at all to be honest with you you know yeah that's something that I've noticed and talked about with a lot of people I mean everybody is different and we talk a lot on the show about people have different experiences so I wouldn't want to speak for everyone but there definitely is this this pattern that happens where someone starts to take a psychiatric drug and there's kind of like a short-term benefit but then the perception from the medical establishment is that oh this is correcting your chemistry this is restoring balance and so you need to be on it long term or it's it's controlling your illness where in fact that's actually not what's happening that after a while the drug itself becomes an obstacle because, as you said, really what the antipsychotics are is that they're a kind of sedative, they're a kind of tranquilizer that helps to dampen not just any so-called symptom that you might have, but your entire mental experience. It just kind of like puts a, a blanket on it with all kinds of risks and side effects and, and the harm that can come from the drug itself. And then if there is a balancing process that needs to take place, at some point, often it seems like the medications can really interfere with that balancing process, especially if someone is under the belief that all they need to do is take the med, that they're on their, they have a mental illness, they need to take the drug, and that's it. Whereas eventually, you know, you're, you may end up have to look at things like you said, like physical exercise, like doing things for your mental wellness, like doing spiritual balance um, practices and, 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 and addressing that side of things because, um, you know, this is, it's a very complicated process and it's a very individual thing. I wouldn't want to generalize for everyone, but I do think that, that the message that medications are the answer, you have an illness, correct your illness with, with a medication, that can really hold people back. And in your case, it sounds like it held you back for, for years. It did because I mean, and I, to be honest with you, um, I don't really blame it. Yeah, I don't. I, I can't really blame any any one individual. I think that there's a sort of uh, a misunderstanding about the, the the various elements involved in all of this um, sort of uh, realm of of, of well being. But I think it's about time we need to sort of uh, face up to the facts that um, you know when a person is unwell and when they're overwhelmed that they need a very general help across the board. They need help in sometimes in very practical things to do with issues to do with their uh, family life, their career, financial things, businesses going wrong, 
um, drinking more, certainly drugs being a problem, but general things going off back through all of their life as well, you know, so they need obviously possibly to take um, some, some time out uh, to maybe go on a retreat to recover somewhere. And I believe they need to work on their mind, body and soul balance in a very healthy, uh, natural way. You know, eating, uh, rest, certainly sleep and rest and uh, getting a break from things. I, I, I really think that in today's uh, stressful world, and it is stressful, that uh, we need to think more about the, the idea of the retreat uh, as regularly as possible. We need, we need time, downtime to give our mind, body and soul a chance to recover you know for us to, to maintain our well-being and you know it, it, it needs to be something which it, it's not rocket science it doesn't have to be complicated it doesn't necessarily have to involve all sorts of complicated uh, therapies and ways of doing things and you know stuff like this I think it's very simple you eat uh, reasonably uh, healthy food you get exercise I find swimming great to relieve uh, tension and uh, stress I certainly avoid, uh, I, I, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't take drugs, I, I, I've gone beyond the, the psychiatric uh, medication uh, way of looking at things. Um, you know, I'm not saying that people don't become, say, you could say mentally unwell, but it's, it's a complicated situation and there's usually some very practical things which can be done to help that. And there's usually a, a, a way of looking at their mind, body and spiritual health which could possibly avoid them ever starting on medication. If you simply look at particular aspects of, of the person's uh, unwellness or, or ill health and, and put a label on that and, and treat it with a medication, you're denying that person the chance to actually get back to health as fast as possible in the most natural way that suits them, that, you know, on an individual basis I'm talking about, you know. Yeah, there's so little interest that um, the mainstream medical establishment has in really listening to the stories of people who've actually been through and recovered and are no longer taking uh, medication, have moved on with their lives. That's one of the reasons that we have Madness Radios to get folks like yourself on and so many others who've come on the show and to look at the alternative research, that there's so much suppressed research that supports exactly what what you're saying that medications often, not always, I don't want to overgeneralize, but um, for a lot of people, they can become an obstacle and they be, it can be start to become the problem themselves. And then, you know, you were fortunately able to get off the medications, um, but a lot of people have a really hard time with the withdrawal process and especially with the mood stabilizers and the antipsychotics. There is this big message of long-term rest of your life and then people, you start to take them and the medications themselves change their change your brain chemistry because all psychoactive substances change brain chemistry and you take them every day and there's a long-term change and then pretty soon you have difficulty with withdrawal and you become dependent on the medication it does become something that people do stay on them long term there may be maybe a need for something to calm a person down when they when they walk in the door in that terribly distressed state for the very first time. I mean, to be mm -hmm. honest with you, the first day that I went to that psychiatrist, I, 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 I did need help. I needed something. But perhaps if I had been taken to a place um, of retreat where I could have been sort of debriefed almost and uh, sort of talked through um, the stuff that had been going on for a long time, 
um, if I had been able to talk to people of experience who had been through it to a degree and understood what it was like to hear voices, to be disorientated, to have this extra um, heightened, if you like, um, view. Now, I must say as well, Will, that I, I continue to live with the, the connection, as I see it, or this heightened experience of, of reality. I mean, elevated, I don't know what words you'd use for it, but my experience or my version are of, of reality is personal to me, and I think everybody has a personal experience of reality. When, when, my, when my dad talks about reality or my parents talk about reality, my mum and my dad, that's where I came from, and I can relate to that. But they have had to try and come to terms with the fact that, well, my perception of, of reality has, has changed and is different from theirs. It's not any necessarily better or worse. I mean, I'm very capable, I'm very happy, I have a great... Um, quality of life and I'm well able to look after myself and if if I had been guided through this thing possibly by people who knew what they were talking about I, I wouldn't have got into such terrible distress and caused so much um, problems myself and other people around me and certainly um, not gone down the, uh, the, the, the psychiatric route at all because it, it really did nothing for me you know. Brian this is a really interesting aspect of your story that I think you know shows the complexity of the mind and the complexity of spirituality. I mean, we know historically, culturally, so many peoples have used altered states of consciousness, whether it's drumming, dancing, which gets you into an altered state, whether it's a group experience, which can can itself be very powerful. Music is very powerful. Mind-altering experience is then even more powerful are using drugs. And as we know, tribal cultures, um, historically, there have been all kinds of sacred hallucinogens that have played a role as a substance in inducing an altered state of consciousness. And then that's an opening to a spiritual state. And to see it simply as, okay, this is a pathology, these are delusions, you have a mental illness, it's the chemical is causing a malfunction in your brain, and therefore that's why you think you are having telepathy. That's an oversimplification of a much more complicated process. And it sounds like what, what happened to you, and this is something that I can really relate to myself, is that the the drugs, the altered states experiences, the hallucinogens um, opened up something that was latent or potential in your mind. And then now your process has been, how do I separate out the unhealthy part of that, but I still validate this spiritual, healthier side that is really a heightened state of consciousness and it is actually contacting psychic spiritual realities that aren't just delusional the reason why i tell my story is is because i think there's a lot of people out there who are being um confused uh, by sort of um misinterpretations of what's really going on here because I feel that they're in certain parts of the world, I don't like to use the word primitive cultures because they're certainly not primitive, but in other parts of the world or anywhere in the world, if you want to put it that way, with some people, they have a perception of reality or a spiritual um, aspect to their life, which is different from what I would have traditionally or what I would have normally grown up with in 70s Limerick. And to be honest with you, it's just as valid or is just as good or is, is just as normal or natural as where I was. I mean, for me, the bigger picture here is that the spiritual 
um, aspect of all of this is what we really should be talking about. I mean, mentally, uh, you could say, I mean, you know, doors are being opened up mentally and stuff like that. But spiritually, I actually think that this is the real crux of the matter here, that throughout the world, there are varying spiritual um, viewpoints. And uh, some people have no uh, difficulty whatsoever in, um, you know, the the uh, certainly the afterlife or what we would call the other life, the, the other <laughs> the other life, um, inside, outside, whatever. Um, and as regards voices, visions, this sort of thing, some uh, for some people that would be completely normal, and there would be nothing weird or strange about it at all. And and you know, for I mean, why can't that happen for somebody who's in Western culture? who's sitting in a room with nice warm uh, heaters and and uh, the internet or whatever, um, there's no reason why my spiritual experience shouldn't be, reflect somebody who's um, stuck up a tree in the Amazon jungle or something. I mean, it, 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 why should it be so different, you know? Well, Brian, tell us a little bit about what you're living with today and the, the heightened state that you still have, have contact with. I often use the analogy that... Um, for a lot of people, um, there is the physical realm where you're sitting in a, in a room and sounds that you hear is either from the television or music or whatever that's in the room. But for me, it's like I'm in these, this, there's another room, there's a, an unseen room. So I'm like, it's, I'm in two rooms at the same time. One is physical and the other one we'll say is spiritual. And for a lot of people, they wouldn't be that aware of the spiritual room. Whereas for me, I'm aware aware of, of both as such. So I'm very much in contact with the physical realm. But I suppose you could say I'm kind of halfway between the two. This other room, the spiritual room, I, I, to be honest with you, I'm completely open to interpretation or suggestion about what, what is going on there. Because I don't like to define it too, too strongly. Because I find that if you do try and define it, uh, in in physical terms, it it's, it just confuses. They are different. The rules on one side are different from the other. This other layer of reality, if you want to put it, um, is there all the time, every day, and it it I don't know how to describe it. It just there's a balance between the two things for me. You know what I mean? And to achieve that balance has taken a lot of hard work, but. That hard work wouldn't necessarily be in the physical world. It's actually on the other side. I have agreed that, look, I don't need too many answers if that's what suits you. These, this is what I would say to the, 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 the voices, if you want to put it that way. So that kind of suits them and it kind of suits me because, I mean, I, I will be alive for X amount of years, another, another while yet. And in a way, I, I want to stay <laughs> pretty much in contact with the physical world. I have no problem with this other thing. Um, but, uh, you know, t for me, um, I like to have a kind of a balance between the two. It might not be the same for everyone. So I don't like to go too far into it. But at the same time, I, if it did stop, I, I, I would be lost without it, you know. So, yeah, after 20 years of it, well, I, I've just gotten used to it. And it plays, as I say, it just plays an active role in my life, you know. So it sounds like the voices and this other world, this other room that you contact really help inspire you as a teacher and an educator and someone who's an advocate in the world to say, hey, look, this is something that I go through. I believe in it. It's real. It's part of my reality. And then to validate it in other people that, that actually this is another way of looking at these experiences that we don't have to see this as a drug-induced delusional illness kind of thing that actually people are being connected to spiritual realities. They're just as valid as any other reality. And we need to help support them and guide them and 
and take care of them rather than just tossing them into psychiatric institutions and saying you have to take uh, medications. This is something which has always been there and always will be. There is a balance between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. I mean, if you consider the bigger picture of us, we're, we're uh, sitting on a ball of earth, floating in space. I mean, the possibilities are absolutely endless. And to be focusing on the most narrow of, of issues in, in such a well, narrow way, it just seems to be denying people's uh, ability to imagine uh, what's out there or what's here. You know, I mean, if you think about it, uh, physically, other planets are very far away. Or, but, I mean, in spiritual terms, they could be right here. You know, so the possibilities are endless, to be honest with you. And I, I think that if people are encouraged to go with it and explore and dream and, you know, I mean, sometimes this is almost like a waking dream. But uh, anything is possible as far as I'm concerned, you know. Brian, we're just about out of time. Can you give us some contact information? People want to get in touch with you and, and find out more about the organizations that you work with? Yeah, my email address is voicesireland at gmail.com. Uh, the website is www.voicesireland.com. And also there's renew-ireland.com and campaignagainstsuicide.com. Brian Hardnett, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thanks, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Brian Hardnett. He is the chairperson of Hearing Voices Ireland, a key member of Renew for Mind, Body, and Soul Wellbeing, a member of the Campaign Against Suicide, and for six years he was a peer advocate with the Irish Advocacy Network. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks a lot for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net. 